Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Many, many moons ago, I tell people I used to be famous. I used to work in TV and radio. And on my broadcasting career stint, I actually spent some time in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And by the way, I, was, I had a morning show partner. His name was Kurt Wallace, and I'm Brent Keller. And the name of our morning radio program was The Bridge Breakfast Bunch. We were 92.7, The Bridge, and it was The Bridge Breakfast Bunch. And no one thought Kellogg was my real name. They thought it was a made-up name because of The Bridge Breakfast Bunch, right? And so... Kurt's a little bit older than I am, and he had developed this character that he would use for various radio bits. Back in the day when radio used to be fun and creative, and you did all this character stuff and used the mental side of the imagination, and he developed this character where he could talk like an old man, and it was Old Pete from Petite, Louisiana. And he would do Old Pete sounds, and so I thought, well, I can't be outdone by that. I've got to have my version of an Old Pete from Petite, Louisiana. So I developed... Krusty Krab, that's right. Hello, everybody, I'm Krusty Krab. And so, like, we would do this thing, and I would be Krusty Krab. I haven't used it in years, so Krusty's a little rusty. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to sound a little bit at times this morning like Krusty Carl, okay? Listen, kids these days, they don't know how good they have it, right? Listen, when I was a kid, we didn't have a TV remote control. I was a remote control, Right? In Antlers, which is a town where I was born and lived till about fifth grade, we had cable TV. You know how many channels we had? Ten. We had ten cable TV channels when I was a kid, right? There were no such thing as car seats. Today, you have to pass the eighth grade writing exam before your parents will let you out of the car seat. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through some pictures, kind of take a stroll down memory lane. My first car that I remember, my parents had a silver Chrysler Cordoba. Look at that beauty. And it looked, that wasn't the car, but it looked just like that. That silver paint and that kind of burgundy. That was classy. You know what I'm saying? And if you look, look up in the back window, that's where I sat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I was little enough, there was enough room back there that a small kid could get up in there. And in the wintertime, the sun beating down on that glass, it was warm. And my mom's family lived in South Texas, which was an eight, nine-hour car trip, right? And so my parents, when we would go for holidays or, or go to visit, my dad wanted to leave at like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and so they would just leave us boys dressed in our PJs because my parents wanted to drive in peace for three or four hours with that. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can we stop at McDonald's? Can we stop at McDonald's? Can we stop at McDonald's? Can we stop at Burger King? You know, and so they wanted like three or four, maybe five hours of just peace. And so Brian and I would just sleep and I would crawl up in that back window space and just sleep. And that when the sun, I could tell when the sun came out, it was just warm and I'd cuddle up there in my blankie and it was just, it was sleep, right? There were no booster seats in the 70s. The only time I got boosted in the seats when I stuck my tongue out at my mom. And my door didn't have a lock on it. I thought I was going to die that day. You know, whoa, she's real, you know what I'm saying? So, kids these days, they don't know how good they have it. Kids these days, they don't understand that gaming consoles, the controllers actually had a wire that connected to the game. You know what I'm talking about? You remember that? You know, they had a cord, none of this wireless 
lazy stuff, right? So I, I know, I know, in, I know in the state of our country and, and all that, there's enough division, but I'm probably going to create just a little bit of division this morning, probably going to bring a little divide in here. I'm just sorry if you're watching online, you'll miss the rioting and all that stuff. So I, I just, show of hands, you can even write there, you know, in the chat or whatever, put a little hand up. How many of you had the Coleco game thing? Game thing? Anybody in here? Okay, there's a couple over here. Anybody else? Anybody else? No? No, the rich kids, right? All right. How about the Atari? Yeah, domination right there. I was an Atari kid. Dig Dug, Pac-Man. So my parents owned a store, and so we actually sold the Ataris, and we sold the cartridges that go in there. And, and so we got it, but we couldn't put it out till a certain day. We got the cartridges like two days before everybody else. I got Pac-Man before you people got Pac-Man, right? All right, I don't want the 90s babies to feel left out. Where are my OG Nintendo NES people at? Holla at your boy with some Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers, right? All right, how about the Nintendo 64? Where are you at? Uh-huh, there's all the rich kids. I see. Oh, okay. Very, very important moment happened in game console history. We're doing this new series. I've spent some time reading about this stuff and going down memory lane. Remember a game called Space Invaders? In 1978, a video company out of Japan created Space Invaders. And it was the first of its kind. It, it, was, it was more than just bouncing a ball and kind of playing digital tennis and pong and all that, right? It was actually you're shooting at things. It was the first shoot 'em up game. But that's not what changed the gaming industry, okay? Tomohiro Nashikato. I'm going to say that again because I'm impressed with myself, right? Tomo, Tomohiro Nashikato, they developed the technology for a video game to remember. Before you just played it, when you were done, it was done. Space Invaders was the first game that kept track of high scores. Remember that screen where you could put your three initials in? Uh -huh. My initials never got up there, right? But it, it would keep track of high scores. Well, that opened up a whole new door of technology for the gaming industry, and the race was on. Games being able to save information just really it changed things. So it used to be if you're playing through a level and you lost in that level, or if you, now we just say you died, you had to go all the way back to the beginning. But Tomohiro Nashikato's new chip allowed for games to save in-game progress. 1986, The Legend of Zelda was introduced. Any Zelda players in here? Yep. The Legend of Zelda took place predominantly in a medieval Western Europe-inspired fantasy world called Hyrule. And Hyrule's principal inhabitants were these kind of pointy-eared, elf-like humanoids called Hylians, which included players like Link, and the princess, Zelda. As I understand it, I, I didn't play Zelda. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have Hillian, right? But as I understand it, Zelda was the first game that developed this ability that if you reached a certain point in a level and you lost or you died, you did not have to go all the way back to the beginning of the level. You would respawn at what's become known as a checkpoint. Thank God. Super Mario Brothers developed the checkpoint because I would have never made it through the game, right? They quickly adapted this checkpoint system so if something goes bad in your character, 
dies, you don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of the level. You could respawn at the checkpoint. So thankful in my life, I don't always have to go back to the beginning of some of those lessons. I can fail at something, but if I've worked hard enough, if I've given it my best, I don't have to go all the way back to the beginning. I just go back to that checkpoint. I take a couple steps backwards, but I don't, I'm not starting back at the beginning. And over the next few weeks, we're going to explore some of these checkpoints in our spiritual growth and in our life. But today's message is called Level One, Getting Started. No, it's, a, it's, it's like you start in the game. It should be the easiest level, but quite possibly it could be the last level, it could be the hardest. Getting started on a new year, getting started in a new season. And as you would play a video game, you would learn things in that level. That when you died, you went back, you're like, well, I'm not going to jump on that block again, or I'm not going to get caught in that trap again, or I'm going to jump over this thing again. You would learn where the bonuses were, where the positive things were. Getting started on level 2021, today I want to I give you some tips how to navigate this level. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 4 if you have your Bible or want to turn it on. But actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up some steam. I'm going to start in Matthew 3, the last couple of verses, so we can hit level of Matthew chapter 4, hit it up and running. And I know that at this point, you'd probably rather talk about Mario and Zelda and Space Invaders, but today, I think we should talk about Jesus, right? So Matthew chapter 4, it's level 1 of Jesus' ministry. He's just about to get started in his ministry, okay? He's been baptized by a prophet known as John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was the prophet that came and said, Prepare the way for the Messiah. That's him. He's the one that's the Messiah, okay? And Jesus, before he began his ministry, he's doing what many of us are doing in this season as, as we begin this year. Jesus is in a time of prayer and fasting. We begin. Here at Hillsprings, it's part of our rhythm. We begin the year. We've begun 2021 with an intentional 21 days of prayer and fasting. It's not just a diet. It's sacrificial. It's intentional to say, God, I'm, just, I'm giving something up so I might get more of you. A brother is hungry this morning. I just want some bacon. You know what I'm saying? And so a lot of us are doing a Daniel fast. No sweets, no meat. And so some of you are like, oh, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know what I can fast. It's not too late to jump in. Yours can be a 14-day fast. You can go full 21 days. It just needs to be intentional, something that you give up, and it needs to feel sacrificial. And you should expect it to be hard every year. Every year, I always talk to somebody or hear a story or something. They get halfway in, and something comes up, and they're like, oh, I just, I just couldn't. It was too hard. You should expect it to be hard. It was hard for Jesus. So Matthew chapter 3, I'm just going to read a couple verses here and then we'll, we'll turn the page to 14. It says, after his baptism, so John the Baptist, the prophet I just spoke of, he baptized Jesus and as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. It's a cool moment. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly beloved son who brings me great this is my son and who I'm well. John baptized him. Jesus comes up out of the water. He hears this voice. It's affirmation from God. Time. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then, like next, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Right now, you say thank you, Pastor Brent, because I don't ask you to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. 
He's just 21. You know what I'm saying? For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasted and he became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, what's the last thing that he heard before he did this? This is my son. That was from the voice of God. This is my son who I'm well pleased. If, like the enemy was trying to talk him out of that, trying to convince him. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus told him, no. That was probably one of your greatest spiritual weapons to speak to your temptations, to speak to your thoughts, to speak to the enemy. The New Testament talks about he throws fiery darts we believe those to be thoughts that he throws at our mind. No. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what we call the temptation of Jesus. He was let out for 40 days and 40 nights. And towards the end of that, he has this encounter with Satan. He's in this time of prayer and fasting and it got difficult. Jesus experienced some serious, some serious spiritual attack. And you know what? Over the next 21 days, you're going to experience some serious spiritual attack. You're fighting with your spouse and you don't ever fight with your spouse. Welcome to fasting and prayer. Your kids done gone all crazy, but your kids normally aren't crazy. Welcome to fasting and prayer. And in this situation, it's Satan himself. You've probably done some spiritual warfare, but you probably ain't ever dealt with Satan himself. You probably dealt with some punk thug demon. But right here, Jesus is being tempted by Satan himself, and he's going to tempt him in three areas. I'm going to look at this. I'm just telling you, if you're fasting, you're being intentional about prayer, trying to start this year right, you should expect some spiritual attack. The first temptation that Satan came after him with was provision. Matter of fact, if you ever studied psychology, this is the first need of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is survival. And he comes at him with, with provision. I put in the parenthesis their need, like my needs. You know Jesus is hungry because I'm hungry. And it hadn't been 40 days, it's been seven, right? And he looks at him and he says, Jesus, why don't you turn that rock into some stuffed crust pizza? <laughs> why don't you turn that into some cheese bread, brother? There's a couple of things going on here. The first one is, it's obvious, right? He's trying to make it hard so Jesus will give up on his fast. I'll let that set for a minute. He's trying to get Jesus to quit. It's too hard. You don't need to fast. What's, what's it matter? What does it matter? God loves you anyway. What does it matter? Just one meal. Just one piece of bacon. Just one chicken enchilada with cheese sauce. What's it matter? Right? But the core, the bigger part of this temptation is he was trying to create doubt in the mind of Christ. The real test, the temptation asked the question, do you really believe God's going to take care of you? Will God really take care of me? Is God going to let me die if I fast? He came after the physical. In Philippians 4.19, Paul would write this years later, it says, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If that's true, then how sometimes, how come sometimes I have to stress about money? If God's going to supply all my needs. How come my car seems to break down at the absolute worst possible time? How come the air conditioner goes out in the house or the plumbing has issues Whatever can go wrong can go wrong at the absolute wrong time. God, will you take care of me? 
And this temptation of the physical goes right after the heart of trusting my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. He's really asking this question, will God really take care of me? If I do this whole fasting thing, will I even make it? Am I going to starve to death? Am I going to die? If I start on this path of, of trying to be a generous person and giving and living generous, and if I start giving, am I going to go broke? Am I going to be able to retire when I want to? My kid's going to get to go to college. Right? If I truly take a day out of my life and set aside and worship God and make church a priority and sitting around my family dinner table with my family and honoring God on a Sabbath, can I still get everything done? Can I still make enough money? This temptation asks the question, do I really believe God's going to take care of me? Will God really provide all my needs according to his riches and glory? I want to show you something about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. It says, even though Jesus was the son of God, he learned obedience by what he suffered. What's the most important thing you can do in your life? Be a parent, that's important, that's really important, but it's not the most important. Be a godly spouse, that's important, important, but it's not the most important. Be successful so you can make an impact and give back to the kingdom or, or fulfill your purpose. Those things are all important. But the most important thing, the most important thing you can do with your life is learn how to obey God. Amen, Pastor Brent. I'm going to show you how you do it. Like when you're looking at the stage and I say something that's, if you want to sound spiritual, you go, amen, Pastor Brent. You don't even have to say Pastor Brent. You just go, amen. It's easy. I'll walk you through it. Obeying God is what made Abraham the father of a great nation. Obeying God is what made Moses the rescuer of a nation. Obeying God is what made David a king. And it's what made Jesus a savior. If you go on and read the rest of Hebrews chapter 5. Not your gifting. Not your talent. Those are important. Those help. But it's a heart that says, God, I want to obey you. That is the most important thing you could have in your life. The suffering that we learn how to obey God. Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. There's a lot going on right there. And he said, if you are, again, he's trying to get him to doubt that he's the son. Of, if you are the son of God, just jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and he will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say. Every time Jesus responds, the enemy comes at him with the scripture, Jesus comes back with the scripture. That's why it's important to have the word of God in you. It's important to take the next step. There's some verses in the Bible you probably ought to have memorized because you're not, the enemy's going to throw a fiery dart at your mind and all you're going to be able to remember is say no. But if you've got the word of God in you and memorized, hey, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I've got some power here I can say no with. You're not always going to have your Bible and go, okay, I need a verse for dealing with temptation. That's why I need God's word in me so you can come back and say, you know what, enemy? The scripture says you must not test the Lord your God. Satan couldn't get him with the first temptation of provision of God's not going to meet your needs. So he comes at him with a second temptation. It's the temptation of protection. 
God going to meet my expectations? It cuts right to God meeting our expectations that we have about him. If God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful and God is supernatural, can he do some of that superpower thingy things, right, that I would expect a superpower God to do for me? Is he going to do that for me when I need him? So I, I want to go... I want to go right at this idea of what Satan comes at him. This is what Satan basically says. Here's this idea. You can jump off of that building and God will fix it. It feels like this. It feels like you can do whatever you want to do. Like jump off a building and God will fix it. I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. Like jumping off buildings and God will still protect me. When I read this, as I was studying this, I I like to put myself in the scene. I can almost close my eyes and imagine Jesus standing there. And I think at this point, it doesn't say, and Jesus laughed, ha, 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 right? But I just almost see Jesus just laughing at him like, that's cute, Satan. That's cute. If you are the son of God, jump off. And Jesus says, for the scriptures say. Satan quoted scripture at Jesus, and Jesus came right back with scripture. That's cute. And then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know what, Satan, the, enemy, the, the scriptures also say? Don't test the Lord your God. Put that in the BKV for you. Don't be stupid. You need to be a shirt. Don't be stupid. Flash Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Paul, <laughs> that's a good one, Bobby. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. Don't kid yourself. God ain't mocked. Don't be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. You jump off buildings, you're going to have issues. If you plant a seed of jumping off of a building, you're going to reap the seed of broken bones or much worse, right? Listen, forgiveness and protection are two completely different things. Yes, God is very rich in mercy and will forgive you. If you want to jump off a building, God will forgive you for being stupid, okay? But the consequence of that action, gravity is very real. The consequences of our sin that God forgives me for, but it doesn't necessarily remove the consequences. The consequence of jumping is still there. So you can't go jump off into a bunch of wrong behavior. You can't go jump off into lying and gossiping and being rude and mean. Well, that's just who I am, right? And then get mad at God. Lord, I don't have any friends. I'm so lonely. There's consequences that come with my actions. Yes, God will forgive you for being a pain, but he won't protect you from your consequences. God will not be mocked. What you do, you harvest. What you plant, you harvest. You cannot be a greedy old goat. Never give, never help anyone. You're selfish. Then expect God or God's people to help you in your time of need. It doesn't work that way. In this temptation... Satan is trying to get Jesus. Just do whatever you want to. Fine. Live however you want to. It's no big deal. Just jump off into whatever you want to jump off into. You're loving God. Your Father. He will still protect you. It'll just be fine. Yes, your loving Father, your loving God will forgive you, but gravity is real. I fear 
We live in a day in time that we have bought into this temptation more than any of the other temptations. I'm going to jump off buildings, but then I'm going to expect God to protect me. I'm going to jump off into things that aren't right, practical wisdom. The Bible says don't do them, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to expect God to forgive me, which he will. But then we get mad because God doesn't necessarily protect us from the consequences of our own stupidity. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to live my life to a biblical standard, but I still expect God to protect me. And when he don't, God, where are you? He's like, I'm down here on the ground where you ought to be. The first temptation was one of provision. Will God meet my needs? The second temptation was a temptation of protection. Will God meet my expectations? And the third temptation is power. And this is what I call one of the big three. Sex, money, and power. Think about leaders today in our culture. When they fall, it's typically they were doing things with a person they shouldn't be doing them with. They were spending or taking money that wasn't theirs to take. Or they were doing things that said and communicated, I'm above the law. Right? Sex, money, and power. And power is where we lose ourselves. We forget who made us. We forget what got us where we are. It's where arrogance becomes more and humility becomes less. The lure of power. We think, we come to a place where we're untouchable. And that's what Satan was offering to Jesus, was this lure, this desire for power. Verse 8. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give it all to you. If you will kneel down and worship me. Finally, verse 10, Jesus has had enough. Get on out of here. Say it like that. It, it helps. Get out of here, Satan. Like a dog. Get out. Too much? Um, for the scripture, say, the third time, Jesus is quoting scripture. You must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away. And then angels came and did what? They took care of Jesus. I really think Satan saved this temptation to last. I can't get him with provision. I can't get him with protection. I'll get him with power. Okay? Because this is the temptation that got let me show you something in a couple of the Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel and Isaiah both talk about what we believe. Okay, It's not absolute, but what we believe is the fall of an angel created by God called Lucifer to become Satan. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who deserve the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and I'll set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountains of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. There's that concept of hell. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 28 also tells a very similar story. It's not absolute, right? But a lot of theologians believe 
This is God giving insight to Ezekiel and Isaiah as to how this angel that God created by the name of Lucifer and how he became the villain, how he became Satan. Most think he was one of the three archangels. There's Michael, there's Gabriel, and there's Lucifer. And I know when you, you hear that, all of a sudden we're like, Lucifer, that's such a naughty name. We have a negative connotation about Lucifer because of how we have been taught about him. The devil, right? The word Lucifer in the Hebrew actually means bright, shining light. Okay? He was created in splendor and beauty, and he got to look at him himself, and he said, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. And in the history, not of just the history of earth, in the history of humanity, but in the history of all things created, he was the first sin. This is the original sin. Pride. Lucifer thought he could be better than God. Because he sinned in that way, God kicked him out of the heaven. And, and he, didn't, he didn't want to be alone, right? So then in turn, Lucifer tempted, in turn, God's created man and woman, he turned them and led them to sin. But it was the desire for power that started all of this. I'm going to set my throne above God. He wanted more. He wanted to have it all. So he comes after Jesus. He tempts him with this very thing of power that got him. Physical hunger didn't get him. But this, just jump off into it. God will protect you if that didn't get him. Surely the desire for power would get him. Finally, after three rounds with this joker, Jesus says, get on that, get out of here. You must worship the Lord your God and serve him. I'll give you some final thoughts. You have access to power greater than Satan. I didn't say you had it. I said you have access to power that's greater than Satan. Jesus commanded him to leave, then Satan left. Okay? If you're a Christian, and if you are a believer, any power that Satan has over you, it's because you gave it to him. It's because you jumped off the building. It's because you opened the door. It's because you gave in to the temptation. You let him have it. He will constantly do to you and I what he did to Jesus. He will constantly be tempting you. Listen, new Christian, I'm just telling you, there never comes a point in your Christianity where you stop being tempted. It's always there. It takes different forms. It takes different faces. It takes different times. It comes in different, right? But we will, if Jesus was tempted, you and I should expect to be tempted. Here's the deal. God gave us access to the power to overcome Satan. The good news, James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. I have to do something to step into that power. Okay, just because I got saved doesn't woo, load me up with superpowers. I have to step into the access of the power that God gave me, and I have to do that. Submit yourselves then to God, and you have to resist the devil, and when you do that, get on He will flee from you. No, he will flee from you. First John 4, 4, dear children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than he, he's talking about the enemy. One that's greater is in you than he that is in the world. When you let the Spirit of God rise up on the inside 
and help you overcome temptation, you deny Satan's power in your life. You have access to power that is greater than Satan. It's a good place to say amen. Secondly, I would just encourage you, don't be surprised. We're always having to remind ourselves. Like, it typically hits in that third week of fasting, and everybody's like, ah, on edge. I'm like, oh, wait, I forgot. We're fasting and praying. That's why we're all grumpy with each other, you know. It's okay, kids, you don't have to sleep in the camper anymore. You can come inside, right? If Jesus was tempted, if Jesus had to do spiritual battle with the devil in a season of fasting and prayer, you and I, we should expect it as well. 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of an alert mind or of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, old Beelzebub. I can keep going. I'll just stop right there. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. When I'm not alert, when I'm not aware, when I'm not sober-minded, when I'm not prayed up, when the Word of God is not in me, when I'm not cautious of the temptations around me, that makes me easy prey. The enemy comes in and he throws some fiery darts and he gets all up in my emotions. I go off like a Tasmanian bottle rocket. The kids are hiding from me. The, dog, the cat's the only one that likes me and I think that's because they're evil anyway. Right, well, I'm easy prey because I've not been sober-minded. I'm yelling too much. Very calm. But we're fasting. We're intentionally starting this year with the time for prayer. It's not just a diet. We're listening for the voice of God for open doors and direction and clarity. Don't be surprised if you face some spiritual adversity. He's looking for you in a weakened state. Be sober-minded. Be on alert. Don't give in to the temptation to quit because it's hard. Be resolved. I am not. I am not. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to be easy prey. We're going to keep our emotions in check. We're not going to give in to the temptation. That, you know what I'm saying? I'm not going to let Satan have a heyday with me. Amen, everybody? If you're not a believer, you're powerless. You have access to nothing that can overcome you are fighting this battle alone and you will continue to lose. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the world. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.